0: Irie Radio <orcocarcion>
1: octal, <xypte Jesus> Blood delivers oxygen n- to our tissues. It fights off infections. It's coursing <wall HARF> through our veins. But can it help us catch a murderer? A little-known arm of forensic science believes it can. Bloodstain pattern analysis involves the tracing of blood spatter at a crime scene to determine where it came from, at what velocity, in which direction, and from what distance. And trained specialists in the field often state their findings as
0: fact. And then these experts were brought in who have you know all sorts of scientific-sounding terminology and tell the jury in a very authoritative way, I looked at the blood spatter at this murder scene and I can tell you definitively what happened. I can tell you the choreography of this crime, I can tell you how this happened, even though I wasn't there.
1: But can blood really spill all those secrets? On this week's episode, Pamela Koloff, a senior reporter at ProPublica and writer-at-large for The New York Times Magazine, takes us through her investigation into the case of Joe Bryan, a high school principal serving 99 years in prison for murdering his wife. His conviction was based largely on expert testimony of bloodstain patterns that the prosecution argued place Joe at the scene of the crime. Through her reporting, Pamela recreated a decades-old crime, drawing on the neighbors, prosecutors, and cops that saw it change the small Texas town of Clifton. And she even took steps to become an expert herself, swinging an axe covered in human blood to earn her certification in bloodstain pattern analysis. But larger questions
0: remain. What does it mean to be an expert? If you were on a jury, would you just accept what a so-called expert said to you because he or she is deemed an expert.
1: I'm Tessa Weinberg, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Back in the spring of 2016, Pamela Koloff was sitting in a courtroom in East Texas watching a murder trial. It was a complicated case. That issue was whether a teenage boy had killed his mother and then killed himself, or whether the stepfather on trial was responsible for both their deaths. Here's Pamela.
0: And I was fascinated because the father of modern bloodstain pattern analysis, Tom Bevel, was testifying for the prosecution, and one of his former students was testifying for the defense.
1: Teacher and student had the same evidence presented before them. A teenage boy who was found dead with a single shot to his face and with
0: a rifle in his lap. They both looked at the blood spatter at the scene and the prosecution witness said it was a murder and the defense witness said it was absolutely a suicide. And I thought, how can two people who are trained in the same exact type of forensic science look at the same exact evidence and come to diametrically opposite conclusions? Who was right? And really what it all came down to in that case with the jury was which witness presented himself better, which person looked at the jurors in the eye, which person was better dressed, which person was more articulate, because it was clear there was no science there. How could they both come to opposite conclusions?
1: Bloodstain pattern experts are often brought in to debate this kind of circumstantial evidence in murder cases.
0: It often seemed to be used, from what I could tell from looking at cases here in Texas, in cases where there were a lot of grays,
1: The stepfather in the 2016 case was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. His fate, decided by a jury that faced with the same science, heard experts come to opposite conclusions. But it wasn't always that way. In the 1950s and 60s, bloodstain pattern analysis had mostly
0: been relegated to laboratories. It was used in a famous case in the 1960s, the Sam Shepard case, which was sort of the O.J. Simpson trial of its day, And that was really the first that I think most uh, Americans had ever heard of anything like blood spatter analysis or blood stain pattern analysis.
1: Paul Leland Kirk, a renowned scientist who worked on the Manhattan Project, built contraptions to study the size and shape of blood spots. He studied the bloodstains in Shepard's case, and his testimony was credited as one of the key factors that led to Shepard's acquittal and the murder of his wife who was bludgeoned to death.
0: But it really wasn't until the early 70s when a man named Herb McDonald, who was living in upstate New York, began really exploring bloodstain pattern analysis, and he began teaching classes in 1973. He began crisscrossing the country, going to different police stations all over the country, and teaching officers how to read a crime scene, how to look at the blood stains at a crime scene and reverse engineer from those stains what the mechanisms were that had caused them.
1: McDonald's trainings created more bloodstain pattern experts who began to testify in cases. As more courts recognized the legitimacy of bloodstain pattern analysis, the influence of the field began to spread. But how much science was actually involved in bloodstain pattern analysis? Pamela decided to find out. wasn't the only person asking this question. The Texas Forensic Science Commission investigates allegations that forensic science was not used accurately or appropriately in trials resulting in criminal convictions. The agency has become a national leader in its field, and other states often follow its lead on forensic science reform. In late 2016, the commission set its sights
0: on two cases involving bloodstain pattern analysis. They were the first cases that the commission had looked into since its founding. So I was curious about that, and I started looking into both of those cases, and both were extremely compelling.
1: In one, a man named Ed Clark was shot and killed in his bed in 1987. Investigators suspected his wife Norma, but charges weren't brought for more than 20 years. When investigators used bloodstain pattern analysis to charge her with her husband's murder, they said, Stains on Norma's nightgown showed she had been in close proximity when he was shot. Still, all but one of the stains came back negative for the presence of blood. The other case centered on Joe and Mickey Bryan, a couple in Clifton, Texas.
0: I ended up looking into Joe Bryan's case mostly because he was such a revered individual in the community where he was from, and I was just intrigued by how it was that this beloved high school principal who had 36 character witnesses testify at his first trial how he had gotten convicted of this crime.
1: The two had known each other since elementary school, but didn't begin a relationship until later in life when they were both earning their master's degrees in education. Mickey was a fourth grade teacher and often the first instructor to arrive at work each day.
0: She had grown up mostly in Clifton, and she was a beloved member of the community. And she was a very quiet, very kind person. I really didn't meet anyone who had a word bad to say about her.
1: Joe was the principal of Clifton High School and could often be seen cheering on students at Friday Night Football games. People described the two as more than just a couple. They were a team.
0: And she and Joe were locally known as a very devoted couple. They would take these walks at the end of the day through town, and a lot of people used to see them holding hands and walking around.
1: But on October fifteenth, 1985, everything changed. A teacher at the elementary school that morning noticed Mickey's classroom was dark. Maybe she was just making photocopies, the teacher thought. But by 8 a.m., Mickey still wasn't there. At the Bryans' home, No one answered the phone. Mickey's parents didn't know where she might be. The school principal and her parents headed home to check on her.
0: When the principal at her school and her parents came to the home, they discovered that she had been shot in bed.
1: Blood was everywhere. On the ceiling, the bed, the walls. Mickey had been shot four times. In Clifton, a small town of about 3,000 people, the news of Mickey's murder spread fast. At the time, Joe was 120 miles away in Austin at a conference for secondary school principals. When he heard the news, he sat down in shock, his head in his hands. On the ride back to Clifton, he cried the whole way. Investigators had little to go on. Mickey's distant older brother, Charlie, flew from Florida to Texas He hired a private investigator, hoping he'd be able to move the case along. That week, Charlie and the investigator borrowed Joe's car. After making a stop and looking for something to clean their shoes, Charlie opened the car's trunk and found a flashlight, spattered with what looked like blood. Suspicion grew, and Joe quickly became a suspect in his wife's murder.
0: What was so interesting to me was there was so little evidence against Joe, and the one thing... That was used to sort of effectively put him at the scene of the crime was bloodstain pattern analysis, was this idea that this flashlight that was found under somewhat mysterious circumstances in the trunk of his car many days after the murder by someone who had been driving his car around for four days, his brother-in-law, that the speckles on this flashlight were a particular kind of blood spatter that could only have been produced by the type of event in which Mickey had been killed by gunshots, and therefore that that placed him at the crime scene. Only, the flashlight
1: seemed to have blood on it. So if Joe did it, how come there's no blood in his car? A car he would have driven to and from the conference in Austin.
0: And the blood spatter expert went further than that. He said that, Clearly, the killer had cleaned up in the bathroom before he had left the home. So think about this. Think about shooting someone four times and then taking the time, according to this expert, to clean oneself up, change clothes, change shoes, and then leave the house. And that provided the prosecution with what it needed for its explanation of why Joe's car had no blood on the interior of the car, because obviously the killer would have blood on him from being spattered with the blood from the shooting.
1: Eight days after Mickey was found dead, Joe was arrested for his wife's murder.
0: There was a lot to uncover in Joe's case. The crime at the heart of the Joe Bryan case occurred in 1985. Joe was convicted first in 1986 and then again at a retrial in 1989. And his case had really not been in the papers since the early 90s. So this is a really old case and not much had happened in that time.
1: Pamela had decades of records to sift through to recreate a seamless narrative of events.
0: And so I began at the Comanche County Courthouse in Comanche, Texas, which is where Joe's retrial took place. And I just started reading everything I could from trial transcripts to witness statements, affidavits, looking at crime scene photos, and just trying to piece together how strong of a case did the state have before they took this to trial,
1: the documents were full of details, and they helped Pamela form questions to ask sources and gave her specifics to describe while writing. To stay organized, Pamela developed a guide that told her where everything was.
0: My office, by the end of this, looked like you know, sort of a war room, but what I do do is I have one central Word document that lists where everything is located, and. It is sort of a rough outline of the story, so I order things chronologically in it, and then within that, I have links to Google Docs or where I have placed the physical copies of documents, so I can easily refer to one document to find everything else.
1: When going through records, Pamela started from the beginning. That meant Joe's arrest.
0: And that was really helpful to look at chronologically, because you could see from the beginning, how little there there was there that then sort of coalesced into this prosecution strategy against him, in which they tried to present to the jury this very black and white version of what had happened.
1: What was missing from the trove of documents
0: was also just as telling. I wanted to see pictures of the blood-spattered flashlight because that was at the center of this case. That was really all they had against Joe, though How that flashlight ended up in his car and how it was found, I think there are many, many questions that surround that.
1: As Joe's first trial unfolded, the flashlight became the crux of the prosecution's case. When it was tested in the 80s, the reddish-brown specks on the lens came back as human blood, type O. That matched Mickey's, but it also matched nearly half the population. Small plastic particles in the flashlight also seemed to have similar characteristics to the birdshot shells found on scene. The Bryans kept birdshot to scare away pests, and tiny lead pellets were scattered around the bedroom and embedded in Mickey's wounds. So Pamela filed a records request with the Texas Department of Public Safety to see photos of the flashlight, which was kept in its crime lab. The Bosky County D.A. put up a fight.
0: This is a case that was closed in 1989. I was amazed when the Bosky County D.A.'s office fought me on that and So I was really struck that this central piece of information in this case was something that I couldn't even look at a picture of, which, by the way, all the jurors had seen pictures of this flashlight. Finally, this went all the way up to the Texas Attorney General's office, who ruled in our favor.
1: Pamela finally got to see the photos for herself. But they didn't match her expectations.
0: The bloody flashlight. You know, I was picturing something dripping with blood, and you can barely see the substance on the flashlight itself. It's this very faint pattern that people can debate over how it ended up there and what it is, but it was far from the sort of bloody instrument that it had been described as.
1: Still, there were some gaps in the evidence that even a records request couldn't fill.
0: I don't know whether witness statements were missing or were simply never taken. But what was really striking to me is I talked to so many people who had done extensive interviews with law enforcement who could tell me which law enforcement officer it was who had come to speak with them, you know, the number of hours they had spoken to that law enforcement officer, the location, and the approximate date.
1: The only way Pamela could know about some of those interviews was to track down the people who gave them.
0: These are all people who were telling law enforcement there's no way this man could have done this crime. None of those interviews, there was no record of them whatsoever. No audio, no documentation, not even a notation that they had happened. And so then I just started wondering, well, what else happened that I don't know about?
1: By the time Pamela began investigating, the case was more than 30 years old. But residents of Clifton were still hesitant to discuss it.
0: People were still so conflicted and tortured over this case. And there were people who quietly supported Joe all those years, but were afraid to say that publicly. And there was just a lot of confusion still in the community about how it is that he could have committed this crime. And... I just thought that was so striking that after two trials and that many years, that there were still so many questions.
1: The silence made finding sources difficult. And so had the sheer number of years had passed.
0: So one of the challenges of writing about a story from this long ago, and I've written a number of these, the oldest one was a murder case from 1960, is, of course, the challenge that people are dead or their memories have faded or they're simply unavailable.
1: But there was one longtime Clifton resident who made Pamela's job
0: much easier. After I read a lot of documents, the first thing I did after that was try to figure out, well, who can I actually speak to on the record? And I had an invaluable source and someone without whom this story would never have existed, and that is Leon Smith, who's the former editor-in-chief and publisher of the Clifton Record. And that's the newspaper in Clifton, Texas, where this crime occurred.
1: Leon eventually went on to serve as the mayor of Clifton, but he got his start working at the newspaper. He went on to run it and had been investigating Joe's case off and on since the early 90s.
0: And Leon was able to connect me with a few key people without whom, you know, I really couldn't have written the story without. Those were people who knew Joe back in the day, and were willing to talk to me. And when I started working on the story, there was such a stigma around Joe and this case, it was very, very hard to get people to talk. But Leon was willing to make introductory phone calls sometimes, which was very kind, and that opened a lot of doors.
1: Pamela also tried reaching out to people the old-fashioned way.
0: My first approach is often through a written letter that I send in the mail, and I explain who I am, who I'm with, why I'm writing, and then specifically why it is that it's crucial that I speak to that person and how without that person's voice in my story, I can't tell the story.
1: Others slowly came around when they heard that a friend had spoken with Pamela. The domino effect began to pick up speed. And by the time she published, Pamela had talked with more than 40 people.
0: There were people I contacted where I was the first journalist to contact them ever, about this case, about a case where a man had been convicted over 30 years ago, and they were scared. You know, this was a man who was convicted of murdering someone in their town who everyone loved. And I think sort of as a momentum built with different people deciding to speak up, that finally it sort of became a chorus toward the end of people wanting to speak with me.
1: Of course, there are still some sources who refuse to go on the record, like the Bosque County DA's office. They
0: fought me on everything. I mean, they literally wouldn't even say to me over the phone or in an email, we cannot comment. Virtually everyone in the story whose work I was challenging would not engage with me. In the case of Robert Thorman, who is the bloodstain pattern analyst, who testified at both of Joe's trials. This was a local police officer who'd received 40 hours of training before he testified. My critique of his work was extremely, extremely detailed. And so I repeatedly approached him. He repeatedly said he could not talk to me.
1: So Pamela's editor at ProPublica, Tracy Weber, had an idea. Send Thorman a detailed document outlining every single question Pamela had about his work.
0: And this was a very lengthy document that I ended up sending him. I know that he read that document because of feedback I got from him, but he still refused to speak to me on the record. But at that point, I knew that he was aware of what my findings were, what I was going to publish, and that he'd had the opportunity to respond before publication.
1: But there was one character whose side of the story had yet to be told. Joe Bryan. Eighty-six, Joe was convicted of murdering his wife. He was sentenced to 99 years in prison. His conviction was overturned on a technicality, but at his retrial three years later, he was again found guilty and sentenced once more to 99 years behind bars. Pamela reached out to his attorneys, who gave her the go-ahead to interview him.
0: Joe's attorneys did allow me to speak with him, which again is Fairly noteworthy, right, because he's convicted of a very serious crime and they were trying to get him a new trial. They felt strongly enough in him that they allowed him and me to speak unaccompanied by a lawyer.
1: Pamela's first trip to see Joe was in the summer of 2017 at the Walls Unit in Huntsville, Texas, better known as the Death House. An iconic prison in Texas, it gets its nickname because that's where executions occur. Pamela had spent weeks analyzing evidence and old newspaper clippings that showed Joe as a middle-aged man. He was younger, with a mop of brown hair and glasses that take up most of his face. By the time Pamela met him, he was 76, and wrinkles framed his piercing blue eyes.
0: And you could tell just by the way that he moved, the way that sometimes his breathing was labored or different things, that he didn't have a lot of time. And I think that lent Though the story took a long time to write, it lent an urgency to trying to find out what had happened in this case.
1: Time was a factor during the interviews in more ways than one. The Texas Department of Criminal Justice restricts reporters' interviews with inmates to about an hour and only once every three months. So Pamela would meet Joe at the walls unit every 90 days or so. She ended up speaking with him in person three times. Interviewing in prison can sometimes be less than ideal.
0: Often there are these other things that make the interview somewhat awkward. You have a glass or plexiglass divider between you or sometimes you're talking on a phone. I know I am often quite distracted when I'm doing prison interviews about the quality of the recording that I'm getting because prisons are extremely loud and it can be very, very hard to pick up the inmate's words.
1: To combat that, Pamela usually corresponds with an inmate extensively before she goes to see them. That way, they know her news organization, where her purpose is in coming to see them, and she's explained what she hopes they'll cover during their interview. Pamela's interviews with Joe were less about pinning down the facts of his case, and more about understanding
0: him as a person. What's interesting to me is when I've written about wrongful convictions before, when it is a wrongful conviction, the defendant isn't very helpful in the course of your reporting because the defendant doesn't actually know what happened. The defendant doesn't know the facts of the case. They know it was presented at their trial. But to a certain extent, my interviews with Joe really just went to his character and being able to describe him. And as far as finding the facts of the case, I had to look elsewhere.
1: Pamela said the Joe she met in prison was just like the man everyone had described, genial and compassionate.
0: He's just a very soft-spoken guy. Now, I have interviewed people who come across as very nice, who have done terrible things. I'm not saying that you can tell by the way that someone acts in an interview, whether they're innocent or guilty. But I think what I was struck by was the dissonance between the crime he was accused of and the way he presented himself.
1: Robert Thorman, the expert trained in bloodstain pattern analysis, who testified at Joe's initial trial and retrial, had been the linchpin that shifted the prosecution's argument from flimsy to believable. And the extent of Thorman's training in blood spatter analysis, a 40-hour class.
0: As my reporting went along, so many other cases I was looking at also featured "Quote unquote experts who had taken 40 hours of training in this particular forensic science. And this is a forensic science that rests on a deep understanding of advanced math, physics, a lot of very complicated concepts.
1: Pamela had already read a 402-page textbook on the topic. But how could she better understand how those 40 hours of training make someone an expert?
0: And so I remember I was just Driving around Austin one day, ruminating about my story as I always do when I'm reporting and getting ready to write. And I thought, oh my God, I have to go take one of these classes. It's so obvious. Then I'll have the same training as this man I'm writing about. And then I can speak with some authority about what it is that he knows or doesn't know.
1: And it just so happened that Tom Bevel, the man who trained Thorman, had co authored the textbook Pamela Read and was regarded as the godfather of the discipline ran a consulting firm that offered 40-hour classes in the art of bloodstain pattern analysis.
0: So I wrote to his firm, and I used my ProPublica email address. I identified myself as a journalist. I said that I frequently covered trials in which bloodstain pattern analysis was a part of the case, which is all accurate, and that I was wondering if I could better educate myself by taking a class. And they agreed to allow me To attend, and it was quite pricey. It was almost $700, and ProPublica was kind enough to let me take that class and put me up in Yukon, Oklahoma for a week while I did that.
1: The law enforcement officers and investigators taking the class introduced themselves, and when it was Pamela's turn, she was upfront about being a reporter.
0: But largely, people just were not interested. They were totally understandably focused on this course that they had enrolled in and wanting to learn more about what we were there to learn. So I was I was somewhat pleased that I was in a room full of investigators who didn't ask me any substantive questions all week about my work.
1: The class consisted of lectures and
0: lots of hands-on experimentation. We would get suited up in these Tyvek suits, you know, covered from head to toe with goggles and a mask and gloves and then we would use various objects, in one case an axe, in another case a bat that had been dipped in blood. We were working with actual blood and then swinging it around and looking at the patterns that it made and discussing that.
1: The course helped Pamela see the gray areas in bloodstain pattern analysis. So much was open to interpretation. It also gave her clarity on the intimidating sounding terminology.
0: And so whether it's a defense attorney who doesn't know how to cross-examine a witness or a juror who just trusts that the expert witness knows what he or she is talking about because of these scientific-sounding terms that they're throwing around, it can be very intimidating to not know what people are speaking about. So what was great was it was basically a crash course in that terminology. So when I would hear after that or I would read testimony of people talking about Back spatter, high-velocity blood spatter, cast-off, all these different terms. I knew exactly what they were talking about.
1: With her certificate in hand, all Pamela needed to become a provisional member of the International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysis was a recommendation from her class instructor, which he said he would be more than happy to give. It's a designation that judges often look upon favorably. Pamela now had the same amount of training that Thorman and so many others who had testified as experts did. But she didn't feel qualified to
0: testify as an expert at someone's trial. I came to some conclusions, but, you know, who am I? I haven't taken science since high school, so I thought it was important to consult with some actual forensic scientists and biochemists who knew what they were talking about.
1: So Pamela sent them detailed documents from Joe's case and asked them to verify Thorman's analysis.
0: The ultimate conclusion they had was that you could not make any of the assertions that the bloodstain pattern analyst had made at trial based on the evidence that they saw. So looking at spatter on something as tiny as the lens of a flashlight was not enough information to tell them much of anything. There was no evidence to support the idea that someone cleaned up in the bathroom and various other things that the analyst asserted. And so that mirrored my own reflections after having taken the class that I took, but I wanted to hear that from experts to make sure that I wasn't wrong.
1: Before Pamela's story came out, the Texas Forensic Science Commission, which had pointed her in the direction of Joe's case and had been investigating it for over a year, made a decision that would set a new standard for the industry. The commission decided that bloodstain pattern analysis must be carried out by an accredited organization to be allowed in a Texas court. While the details are still being worked out, this means experts like Thorman, who only have 40 hours of training, will not be allowed to testify in future Texas cases. And Pamela's story took the commission's work even further.
0: When the story came out, the Texas Forensic Science Commission, who had already had an analyst look at Joe's case, hired another analyst to take a deeper look at the case. And that analyst is a woman named Celestina Rossi. And she found myriad problems with the expert testimony in that case.
1: Rossi presented her findings to the commission, which released them publicly this past July.
0: And they gave some very damning statements about basically how that testimony was completely incorrect. And that was a huge development in Joe's case to have an official governmental body say that.
1: One month later, Joe's attorneys were granted an evidentiary hearing, during which they argued that Joe deserved a new trial. It would be his
0: third. And this is the first time that Joe was back in court since 1989 when he was found guilty at retrial, so it was a huge event in his case. I think the effect that we saw in the courtroom was both the testimony of Celestina Rossi, who testified for the defense, and a real momentum around Joe's case and and questioning Joe's case. There were a lot of people who turned out for that hearing and a lot of people who've taken a new interest in his case.
1: During his three-day hearing... The courtroom was nearly packed, mostly with Joe's supporters. His relatives
0: wore maroon t-shirts that
1: read, Justice for Joe.
0: And there was a sense, especially from the strength of the testimony that was given by the witnesses that the defense called, that there is a chance that Joe could be granted a new trial. And so it really felt like something was happening in this case in which nothing has happened for so long.
1: After an extended recess for DNA testing, a shocking development came when the hearing resumed in September. A test of the bloody flashlight at the heart of the case showed five of the six stains did not contain blood, and the one that did couldn't be traced to a specific person. Robert Thorman, the now retired police detective whose blood stain pattern analysis was a key factor in Joe's conviction, said his testimony was inaccurate. My conclusions were wrong, he wrote in an affidavit. Some of the techniques and methodology were incorrect. Therefore, some of my testimony was not correct.
0: And I think the question now is, can this case be retried? Is there enough evidence for the Bosque County District Attorney's Office to take this to trial again? And right now we're waiting for the conclusion of the hearing, which will happen this fall, And then the judge overseeing that hearing will make a recommendation to Texas's highest criminal court, the Court of Criminal Appeals, about whether or not Joe should be granted a new trial.
1: For now, all Joe can do from prison is wait. In the meantime, Pamela is following up on new leads and continuing to dig into cases in which people have been wrongfully convicted on the basis of bloodstain pattern analysis. It's been heartening to see readers take an interest in Joe's case, and she hopes they continue to scrutinize the science that put him
0: there. I think there's a much, much larger problem beyond this case, beyond faulty bloodstain pattern analysis that goes to junk forensic science being in the courtroom when it shouldn't be. Joe turned 78
1: in September. After the initial investigation came out, he sent Pamela a letter expressing his surprise at the response to the story.
0: This is someone who really has been stigmatized and demonized for a long time, and he was suddenly receiving letters from people he hadn't heard from in a long time, and I think people were giving the case a second look. I think for anyone, innocent or guilty, who is convicted of a crime, there is a way in which you are cut off from your community, sometimes irrevocably, that is more painful than incarceration itself. And I think for Joe, who still reads the Clifton record every week in his cell, who still cares about that community, I think for people to reach out to him again and to take an interest in what happens to him and his case was very moving to him.
1: for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to Pamela's reporting and resources for reporting on the justice system and the art of the interview. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play, and you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org slash podcast. On our next episode... Abby Ivory talks with Brandon Stahl of the Minneapolis Star Tribune about their series that investigated how rape is handled by police. They found that out of over a thousand cases, in almost a quarter, police never even assigned an investigator.
0: So we wanted to know,
1: when you reported, why, what were you expecting to happen, and most of them said they were expecting justice, they were expecting, I was raped, I expected something to be done against the man who raped me. and. More often than not, they receive the exact opposite. The IRE radio podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Tessa Weinberg. Podcast. Podcast.